you'll partake of that with us. Great things to invite friends and family to as well if you've got folks traveling in for the holidays. So, all right, well, let's get started. We're in Philippians chapter 3 this morning, and uh, we are going uh, verse by verse to the book of Philippians, chunk by chunk, uh, over the eight, an eight-week period. And we're at about the halfway point, and this morning we're in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. The third chapter of Philippians is kind of the crown jewel of Philippians, and probably the most familiar chapter of Philippians. It's got some of the more famous passages, really, in all the New Testament. Um, and uh, it's just a beautifully written chapter, and so that's the chapter we're going to be in this morning and, and, ne- and next week as well, and this morning in the first 11 verses. And so... Um, this morning we're going to be talking about jo- having joy through knowing Christ. And, you know, relationships in our lives are transformative, uh, whether that's for the good or for the bad. And we teach kids that growing up, right? You become, you become like the people you hang around. Uh, sometimes, they're, sometimes they're even a reflection of us sometimes. And um, there's no more important relationship... Uh, than obviously our relationship with the Lord. And really, you know, Apostle Paul is someone, as we've been studying through this, who is writing from a prison cell, but he's overflowing with joy. And you're like, how in the world is someone who is in prison for doing nothing wrong but having his faith in Christ, how is that person... um, can be so joyful in prison. And, you know, he mentions joy or rejoicing some 14 times uh, in this book. He talks about his joy. He commands them to rejoice. We're going to see that even this morning. And how does that happen? Well, we see this morning, uh, we've been talking about it over the last few weeks, different elements that feed into this. But at the very center of this is this relationship that has transformed Paul. He has a relationship with a person and that has transformed him from the inside out and has enabled him to have joy even in the midst of difficult circumstances. We talked in the first week in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1 about Paul's joy through his fellowship with the believers there in Philippi and through gospel fellowship. And we talked about uh, in the next section, verses 12 through 30 of chapter 1, Paul's joy uh, through his purpose in life and living his God-centered purpose uh, in life. And then in chapter 2, we started talking about the importance of attitude plays in our joy and having an attitude of humility as opposed to selfishness. And, and then last week we talked about obedience and how uh, Christians uh, can't really have experience full joy unless we walk in obedience. And so he talks to them about obedience. And this morning we're going to see the very core of all of this really is our relationship, uh, whether we know the Lord or not. And so, and Paul's most influential relationship was his relationship with Christ. So we're going to walk through this text together. Then at the end, I've got a couple of questions that I think this text just kind of begs for us to answer. And it helps us to know whether we, well, first of all, whether we know the Lord. And secondly, whether we're growing in that knowledge of Him. So look with me at Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Philippians 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings becoming like Him in His death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for these words uh, from Paul and most importantly from you, from your word. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would give us discernment and give us wisdom as we walk through your word together and that your Holy Spirit would teach us and encourage us and, and open our eyes to understand and to perceive your truth. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, all right, right there in those first three verses, this kind of introduces really the next, this chapter, chapter three. We've kind of got what feels like a pretty abrupt change of pace here. And when Paul says finally, it kind of feels like when I might say finally, he's got a couple chapters left. And so he says finally, but he doesn't mean there's a few verses left. There's a couple chapters left. And really what he's saying here is he's going into kind of a different mode. He's just kind of changing gears here a little bit and highlighting something new. And he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And there's that command I told you was going to be there. That's a command. Uh, he's telling us to choose joy, to choose to rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. In other words, he's saying, listen, you've heard some of this stuff before, but it's okay. Um, it's okay, uh, you know, Paul had his sugar sticks when it comes to his sermons, okay? There, there were messages you were going to hear and topics you were going to hear addressed more than once. And he says, but that's okay, you need to hear this because it's safe for you. We have to constantly be reminded of some things that we may even think of as elementary as it relates to God's Word and the Gospel because that is a safeguard for us against heresy because false teaching usually always attacks at very core levels of what we believe. And that's what the, the Philippians were in danger of here. And so in the next few verses, Verses he goes into a her- in addressing a heretical teaching that could threaten Philippi, and he wants them to be aware of it. He wants them to be on the lookout of it, and that leads him into this long uh, passage we have on Paul's relationship with the Lord, and even what we get next week as we as he continues this uh, through the rest of chapter three and into chapter four, verse one. So. What is, what is this all about? Well, what we see here in the first, especially verses um, 2 through verse 3, is uh, we see here a, a warning that Paul's giving. And what he sets up for us is, he, is, is, the, is, a, is a match between false religion and a real relationship. Uh, false religion and true religion, if you will. Uh, what it looks like to have self-man-made uh, religion and what it looks like to have a real relationship with God. And you see that revealed in those first two verses with this heresy, uh, these false teachers. He says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evildoers. He's addressing a group called the Judaizers, all right? This was a group of people, a heretical group of people, who believed that once you come to faith in Christ, that wasn't quite enough. That you needed more than Jesus. You also, if you were a Gentile and you came to faith in Christ, you needed to be circumcised and you needed to keep certain rules and certain laws, ceremonial laws, along with your faith in Jesus because Jesus and trusting Him as Messiah and as Lord was not enough to fully save you. There had to be something else. And in a sense, as commentators will say, they were saying you had to become Jewish before you could become Christian. And so if you were a Gentile and you hear the gospel and you hear what Jesus said, they would say, well, that's great. And you b- want to believe it. And they're saying, that's great that you think Jesus is the Messiah and you want to trust him. Now, we need to get you circumcised and get you following some of the Old Testament law so that you're good enough for Jesus. And this was heresy. 
This, this wasn't some good, well-meaning Christians that had something wrong. This was people that were abusing the gospel and in so doing had undone the gospel. See what I'm saying? A, a, a Jesus that kind of saves is not the Jesus of the gospel. He, he doesn't kind of save. He, he, he saves. And so these Judaizers were this... They had trouble letting go of the Old Testament ceremonial law, in particular circumcision, that they had held to for so long as an identifying mark of the children of, uh, of God in the Old Testament, that, that to the point that it was causing them to basically cut off themselves from the true gospel, to, to, to push themselves away from what the Bible really says about repentance and faith in Christ and how salvation comes through Him. And so Paul uh, is very blunt. He says, beware of the dogs, right? Uh, that's a pretty harsh term when you think about it. Now, when we think, dog's a nice term in our day. I mean, this is not D-A-W-G. Uh, this is D-O-G, okay? So we use this term a little differently than they did. And, and a dog's not such a bad thing. If, you, if you're, you know, if you're, you live in Ballin Park, if you're on Ballin Park much, I mean, a dog is a pretty privileged position around here. They have their own bowls at restaurants. Um, I think they vote. Um, it's, uh, they, have, they, they have their own beach down the street. Um, and so it's pretty good to be a dog here. So, so a very animal-loving community. But in their day and age, dogs weren't like our dogs now. Um, they, weren't, they weren't like the domestic-sized dogs that we're used to seeing that, that you have in your home when you take and play in the beach and you, and you, and you run around with in the park. They were, they were scavengers. They were a nuisance, and they were nasty, and they were unclean, and they, and they rummaged through the trash, and, they com- and, 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 and the poor had to compete with them for food. And he... And it was a term that the Jewish people used to describe Gentiles. Because it meant they were unclean. And so when they would talk about Gentiles, they would, they would call them dogs. And they were unclean. They're not like us. They're on the outside. We're on the inside, so to speak, with God. And Paul is reversing it here. And he's saying, see, these people think they're on the inside. They, they think they're the real deal. And they think these Gentiles are unclean and that Jesus is not enough to make them clean. That they've got to become Jewish in order to get Jesus. And really, they're the dogs. They're the scavengers. They're the ones prowling around. They're the nuisance. They're, they're the problem. It's very uh, point blank. It even goes as far as to call them evildoers. Because false teaching about Jesus is not simply a misunderstanding. It is evil. And that's what we have to understand. Paul drew a line in the sand. He says, when you start teaching false things about the gospel and how to know Christ, that is an evil thing. And these people were, were very purposely teaching something contrary to the gospel. We say, why is that evil? Because if you believe something false about the gospel, at the very core root of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, you are no longer believing the true gospel. And it's evil because if you don't believe the true gospel, that, that doesn't save you. And that's why it's evil, because it ultimately deceives people into thinking they're, maybe that they have a relationship with the Lord that they don't really have. And so Paul addresses it very strongly. And he gives the characteristics here of real Christianity. You see, that he says, we are the true circumcision. In other words, we're really the people on the inside. We're the ones that really are in covenant with God. Because see, a circumcision was just a symbol of being in covenant with God and being God's people. He says, no, they're not God's people. The true circumcision, the people that are really God's people are us, are the Christians. And then he lays it out. He says, we worship by the Spirit of God. In other words, we have been given God's Spirit who has been sealed us for the day of redemption. He enables and empowers our worship. And we worship in spirit and truth because God's spirit leads us to this. And God's spirit's at work in us. And he's at work in the church. And that is the place where God's spirit is at work to bless our worship. We worship by the spirit of God. And he says we glory in Christ Jesus. 
That word glory there is like, it's a boasting, a joyful boast, he says. The King James even translates it, rejoice in Christ Jesus. But it's an exuberant boasting and glorying, priding yourself in Jesus. He says that's what we boast in, that's what we pride ourselves in, not our church attendance or our baptism or our denominational allegiance or how much we've tithed or our moral checklist of things we've done or not done, but only in Jesus, see? And we understand what it means to boast in something and to glory in something. We glory and boast in football teams and baseball teams and sports and our favorite movies. And this movie's better than that movie and all that. We know what it's like to glory and to boast in something. And what he's saying is at the core root, Christianity is about this. It's about putting all your boasting as it relates to salvation only in Jesus and none of it in yourself. And that's why he says we put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in anything within us. There's, we know that there's nothing that we can do in terms of our achievement and our morality to earn our salvation. It's, it's, salvation has to come from outside of us. Someone else has to come and save us. We put no confidence in ourselves, no confidence in our flesh to save us. And see, this was the opposite of the Judaizers who were saying they were, they were trying to have it both ways. Well, you, Jesus and you can also you need you need confidence in the flesh. There's some things that you need to do, and you nullify the gospel when you do that. You can't put confidence in the flesh and glory in Christ. At the root core of false religion versus a real relationship with God is a glory either in yourself or a glory in your performance or a glory in Jesus alone. Religion is about performance. It's about living up to a standard. It's about doing. It's about behaving. It's about accomplishing. Christianity is about Christ and what he's already done. And see, the Judaizers couldn't see Jesus for themselves. They couldn't see what, fully what Jesus had done and how he, what everything that he had done was enough because they were so consumed with what they needed to do in adding to the gospel. And so... As Paul's addressing them, them, he realizes, well, they might say something like, well, Paul, you're just calling us out on it because, maybe, you know, you switched over to Christianity, so to speak. And, and, and at the end of the day, maybe you just weren't very good at keeping the standards of the law. And maybe the Judaizers, he would think, would maybe would use that against him. Well, why are you going to listen to this? So he, he used to be, you know, like us, but now he's decided to go over here and he's all into the Jesus thing because at the end, and Jesus only thing because at the end of the day, he didn't perform that well at, at keeping the law. So Paul wants to address that. He wants them to understand. I'm not, I'm, I'm not calling this out because of a, a deficiency in me. I'm calling this out because of the sufficiency of Christ. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He said, if anybody should think that they measured up by that standard, I, would, I, would, I, I had reason to boast in that. But, but his point is that that's, that's, that's not what it takes. He says, he goes through the list. And what Paul gives here is his resume. This is Paul's religious resume. This, this is all of his accomplishments and what Paul had been ultimately trusting in to earn him a right relationship with God before he found Christ. These were things that were, many of them, good things that ultimately stood in the way of a relationship with God for Paul. 
He says, I was circumcised the eighth day. What's he mean by that? Well, that was, that was the Jewish custom. You circumcised the child on the eighth day. Paul is saying, I'm not somebody whose family converted to Judaism sometime late in life. And, and, and we, 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 we didn't kind of sort of, you know, uh, commit to this thing. My, my whole family was committed from the very beginning. I was circumcised appropriately on the eighth day. I, this is kind of like us saying, I've been going to church since, since my mom was pregnant with me type thing. I, I haven't ever missed church since I was in the womb. Same type thing. He says, and I was of the people of Israel. I came from the right nation, the chosen nation, the people of God. He says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. You say, well, what's that? why is that a big deal? Well, that was the faithful tribe in the Old Testament that stood with David. The first king of Israel came from the tribe of Benjamin. It was an important tribe. There was social status with that. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And commentators debate what he means by that. Some think it means that maybe he spoke Aramaic. Um, Basically, his point is this. If anybody was Jewish, it was me. I mean, I was all out, all in. Um, whether you talk about biological or whether you talk about spiritual, I was, I was Jewish. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And as to the law, I was a Pharisee. You say, what about the law? What did you think about the law? Well, I was a Pharisee. That was the, the most strict group at interpreting the law. He's saying, I, I, I had a conservative approach to the law. I, 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 I loved and strived to keep the law. What about zeal? Were you passionate? Were you sincere? He says, I was a persecutor of the church. And in other words, I was so convinced, I was so convinced that, that the um, Christians were God's enemies that I was willing to lock them up and throw them in jail and haul them off to be executed. I was a persecutor of the church. I was very passionate about my religion. I was very zealous. And then he, well, what about morality? He says, well, as to the righteousness under the law, I was blameless. He's not saying he was sinless. He was just saying, as you look at my life, I mean, I was, I was striving to keep it. I mean, nobody would look at my life and say, you're not living what you preach. They would look at my life and say, yeah, Paul is, I mean, to the best of his, he's striving to do this. He's, he's striving to live the way he says he's supposed to live. He's, 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 he's walking with the Lord in the, best, in, in the, in the sense that he believed in. He, he's, he's a keeper of the law. He had a practice of adhering to it and its standards, and no one could deny that. This was an incredible resume by human standards. He came from the right family. He had the right social standing. He had all the right knowledge. He was passionate and sincere in his faith. And he was morally sound. But see, salvation is not biological, as we know. It's not according to social eliteness. It's not about how much you know or how passionate you may be about your faith. It's not even about how good you are. Paul had his resume all laid out, as I heard a preacher say one time. He had all of his ducks in a row. Then he found out he had the wrong ducks. And that's what happened here. I mean, he, he's got it all figured out. Then he realizes, well, I'm playing the wrong game. I'm, I'm playing the game so well, but then I realize it's, it's the wrong game. And this was the stuff that Paul at one time had counted on to make him right with God, to make him feel accepted by God. It was rooted in his ancestry and his birth and his family. Some of it was stuff that he didn't even have control over. And some of it was stuff that he did. And it's what he valued because it's what he thought God valued. He thought, These, this is what's important to God, so this is what's important to me, and this will, what, this will be what makes me important to God. And the problem with resumes, spiritual resumes, are much, they're a lot like, like regular resumes. They're stressful. Right? If you've ever had to put a resume together, you're, you know, or you, if you're, you're working a job and you're, and you're thinking about your next job or whatever and you start thinking about your resume, it can kind of stress you out when you start thinking about it because you know you're, you're sending it to someone. When I came here, I sent a resume. 
And all, all that they knew about me those years ago was what was on the resume. Right? You're kind of, your life's kind of boiled down to a sheet of paper, maybe front and back. It's kind of nervous. It's kind of stressful. And so, and you know that from, from working your jobs when you think about that, if you've ever went through that. And you start thinking about things like, how does this look on a resume? I need good references for a ref- re- resume. What are people going to say about me? And it's, it's, it, can, it can kind of be stressful if something doesn't go your way at a job or, you, or, or you're without a job or whatever the situation may be. It can kind of stress you out. Resumes are, are kind of consuming and kind of stressful. And some people have really good resumes and some people have really great resumes. And it's the same way in spiritual life. Some of you maybe have an incredibly great resume spiritually religiously and some maybe your resume is horrible right i mean you're just you're just you've just been a hellion both resumes are worthless in the eyes of god that's kind of the point he don't want your resume and that's what paul came to realize that he he had a choice he could present his resume to god or he could present someone else's namely jesus's the judaizers kind of wanted to put both So the bottom line this morning is we have a choice to make. And we see here that Paul made that choice and made an exchange. We see starting in verse 7. We see Paul goes from this lifeless dead religion to this the joy of having actual relationship with God through Jesus. He exchanged his righteousness for Christ's righteousness. His life for Christ's life. Look at verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul said all these things I had seen as gain. And now I see them as loss. And I only see Christ as gain. It's not that all these things are bad things. There was nothing wrong with him being Jewish. There was nothing wrong with, with him being circumcised. On the eighth day, there was nothing. Now, there was something wrong with him persecuting the church. But what Paul was driving at was his passion for what he believed. There was nothing wrong with being passionate about what you believe. There was certainly something wrong with persecuting the church. A lot of these things were neutral or even good things. The problem was that they became a hindrance to his relationship with God because he saw them as a means to his relationship with God. And so he begins to elaborate on how he's counted all these things as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And he uses that very personal phrase, my Lord. I believe it's the only time he used it. Christ Jesus, my Lord. Very personal phrase. And he talks about knowing him a couple of times in that section. It's about his relationship with the Lord. It's for Christ's sake that he says he suffered the loss of all this other stuff. And counted them as rubbish. That word can be translated a few ways. That's a very strong word. It could be translated manure, dung. You know what I'm saying? It, it's a strong word. And, Paul, and, Paul is not, and it's not that Paul is saying that these things necessarily are. He said, I'm considering it as that because in relation to having Christ or having that, having my religion and my performance and all the good things that I've done versus having Christ and His righteousness, it's garbage. It's like garbage. The, he's just backing up what the Old Testament already said. Isaiah said, our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. And that's basically what Paul is saying here. My righteousness was as filthy rags. All the stuff that I had counted on. All the stuff my identity was in. And this is, runs right in line with what Jesus had said when, in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, verses 25 through 26, listen to what Jesus said. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man gain in return for his soul? This was Paul losing his life. You know, for some people, their life is, you know, they're, they're consumed by greed and money and power. Or they're consumed by pleasure and they're addicted to all sorts of deviant behaviors. That wasn't Paul's problem. Paul's problem was he was consumed by earning his relationship with God. He was consumed by religion. He was consumed by something other than God's Son. And a relationship with God based on grace through faith. And Paul said, I counted it all as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Jesus said in Luke 14, 33, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This was Paul renouncing all that he had. See, Paul experienced the massive joy of exchanging self-reliance and human performance and dead, lifeless religion for a personal, vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He lost his life so that he can find it. And you see the phrases here. So that I might know Christ. So that I might gain Christ. So that I might be found in Christ. Because for Paul, it became all about Jesus. And commentators point out, in verses 9, 10, and 11, you have kind of a progression here. Verse 9, it seems that he be addressing justification. His right standing with God based on grace through faith. His salvation experience. Verse 10, his sanctification. His growth in his relationship with Christ. And verse 11, one day, ultimately, his glorification. As we've talked about here before. Just last week, I believe, he was saved. He's being saved. He will be saved. You see that laid out there in verses 9, 10, and 11. And he says, being found in him, I don't want to have a righteousness of my own. See, this is what happens at salvation. We no longer rely on performance or self-righteousness, but we begin to rely on Christ's righteousness. At conversion, we put our faith in Christ and and in his resume and, and not just our own. That's why I've said before, Jesus didn't just die for you. He lived for you too. He died the death that you deserve to die, but he lived the life that you could not live. And so we, when we trust Christ and we put our faith that when Jesus died on the cross, that he paid for our sins, that he absorbed God's wrath, took God's wrath for us, that he was raised on the third day for our justification, what happens is God has given our sin to Jesus. Jesus has taken our sin and has been treated as though he was us, but then God also gives us the righteousness of Jesus and he treats us like we're Christ. Your record is as spotless and as blameless before God as the record of Jesus. You are beloved of God because Jesus is the beloved one of God. Your identity is hidden in Christ. You are clothed in His righteousness. And Paul says, that's what I decided I wanted. That I didn't want my righteousness that I could get through the law, which wouldn't be perfect anyway because I can't keep it perfectly. I want the righteousness, not self-righteousness. I want Christ's righteousness, the righteousness that comes from Him. I heard a good quote this week, and I was listening to a sermon earlier this week on this text. And a guy quoted a guy I quote a lot, a guy named Tim Keller. And how Tim Keller points out that when, when Christians don't only repent of the really bad sins, we also are people who repent of really good things that hinder our relationship. We've got self-righteousness. Things that we do for the wrong reason. In other words... Christians aren't just people that have said, you know, it's wrong for me to do this, this. You name the list of the big bad list over here. There are also people that go, you know what? It's wrong for me to trust in myself and my own righteousness and my own morality instead of Christ. See, if you're someone that says, I don't do bad things anymore, and, but, but you're still trusting in your morality, that's not repentance and that's not Christianity and that's not the gospel. Christianity says out with the, all that old stuff. Not only the really bad things I did, but the fact that I was relying on doing really good things. And the fact that I thought my moral behavior would sometimes justify myself before God. In fact, depending on how you grew up and depending on your background, when you come to Christ, it may be more of a repentance of that than the other. 
Because if you grow up in church, many times that's the thing that gets a hold of you. Is this idea that somehow what you do and how you perform earns your right standing with God. But Christians repent of that. We put that off. And we're not trusting in what we do. We understand that we are sinners. And we also understand that nothing we do can be good enough. And we rely solely on Christ. He says that I may know Him. There's that relational term again. And the power of His resurrection. Paul wanted to know and experience resurrection power in his life. And this is what every Christian gets to experience. This is why Paul said in Romans 6.4 that we're buried with Him through baptism and the death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we can walk in newness of life. Paul is saying, I want to know the power of His resurrection. Paul understood something. There is no resurrection power. There is no power for life change in religion. In dead, lifeless religions. what I mean when I say that. There's, there's, there's no power to change your life in that. It's external conformity without internal transformation. It's decorating the outside while the inside is still corrupted. It's not real change. Real change happens on the inside and works its way out. Self-change and religion changes things on the outside, hoping that somehow I'll change my way on the inside. And that's how someone can clean up their behavior, but on the inside they're still full of greed and lust, and they just lack opportunity. They just lack opportunity. But Christian change, the gospel change that Paul speaks of here, has resurrection power in it, because it takes a dead man and it makes him alive to God. And it gives him a new nature, and he has new desires, and, new, and, and he hungers and he thirsts for things he used to not hunger or thirst for. And it's not about just like, I cleaned up my act. No, no, no. I have a whole new appetite for things I used to not even hunger or thirst for. Paul says, I want to know the power of that resurrection. I want that newness of life. And he says, I want to share in his sufferings. And we do. We, he's, he's not... He's talking about here the persecution and the things that Paul endured. Paul was willing to suffer for Christ because he knew that in his weakness he would experience Christ's strength and Christ's power, that Christ's grace would be sufficient for him. And he was willing to die daily because, see, ultimately, Jesus is the ultimate example for us for what it means. When he says, I want to be conformed to his death, Jesus is the ultimate example for us of what it means to die to self. To the point that Jesus was, was so consumed with serving others and supremely serving God that he was willing to go to the cross, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and give his life in obedience to the Father. And he says the ultimate goal was to attain the resurrection of the dead. Now think about it. Paul was a Pharisee. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, as, as taught in the Old Testament. The Sadducees were theological liberals, and they didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead. You died, and that's it. But Paul prides himself, and you'll, if you follow Paul's teaching, and if you follow Paul's ministry in Acts, he's always contending for the resurrection. Whenever a big riot breaks out, and people are like, what's this guy all about? He's like, I'm, not, I'm just here talking about, I believe in the resurrection of the dead, and I believe it's achieved through Jesus, right? And, and that was really at the baseline of, in the heartbeat of Paul's ministry was resurrection, right? And so Paul was someone that even before he was a Christian, he wanted resurrection. When, when, he, when he was just a devout guy that we saw a few verses ago, who was circumcised on the eighth day, who was of the tribe of Benjamin, who was as to the law, blameless, all that stuff. He, what he was trying to achieve was the resurrection from the dead. He wanted, after he died, he wanted to know that one day he was going to experience the great resurrection of the dead. And then, as Paul was striving for that, in his zeal, persecuting the church, one day, on the road to Damascus, he met a man who had been raised from the dead. 
And so Paul had a decision to make. He's like, well, I've got this list of things that I'm doing in hopes that I can one day achieve what this guy's already achieved or I can just kind of follow this guy. See what I'm saying? That, that, that's why I said, I'm, I'm, the whole point is I want to attain the resurrection of the dead. And Paul realized on the road to Damascus, the way to the resurrection of the dead is not through the law. It's not through keeping all my ducks in a row. It's not through my moral behavior. It's not through external conformity. It's through this guy because he's the only one who's raised from the dead to never die again. So he must be the one. He must be the first fruits. He must be the one that has been raised from the dead that if we believe and trust in him, we will one day experience this great resurrection. And we even get to experience in this life through the newness of life, the foretaste of that resurrection. The resurrected Christ changes everything for Paul. And he wants and he strives to attain the resurrection of the dead. And all this was all centered around Paul's knowing Christ. He realized that the way that he was going to attain the resurrection of the dead was through knowing Jesus. Through relationship with Christ and not through external conformity to religion. As I told you, there was two questions we have to ask ourselves. And here's the two questions. The first one is, I think this text begs us to ask the question, what am I trusting to make me right with God? You can't read this and not see that that's one of the things Paul's pointing out to us. From all the way from dealing with the Judaizers to where he says he's not trusting in his righteousness through the law, but through the righteousness of Christ, through faith in Christ, that depends on faith, that righteousness. He says, it's all about, for Paul, it's learning to trust Christ and not himself anymore. It's not his performance, but it's about Jesus. So, and we have to ask ourselves, what am I trusting this morning? What do you trust to make you right with God? The most critical question you'll ever answer in this life is that. Are you right with God? And if so, on what basis? What are you trusting to make you right with God? See, even non-religious people have an answer to this question in a way. What makes you feel more important in life? What makes you feel valuable to God? Some things you don't control maybe, like you come from wealth, your reputation. A privileged upbringing and some things you do control like success and contribution to society, your family, the pride of living independently from God and others, a lot of things. And for spiritually religious people, it may be affiliation with a church, service in the church, baptism, moral behavior, giving, all sorts of things that we can trust. It's performance, keeping the rules. The thing, you're so proud about the things you haven't done, the life that you didn't live, the choices you didn't make. And you think maybe being a good husband, being a good wife, being a good parent, and the, and the, and the fact that you just didn't morally mess up too bad is somehow good enough, and it, it's not. What are you trusting? For some of you, you're not a Christian, and you know that you've put a lot of thought into what you're trusting, but the truth is something... You haven't put a lot of thought into what you're trusting, but the truth is you know something's at the center of all your hopes and center of all your dreams. There's something that drives you for identity and for value and for worth. For some people, it's something as simple as being a good parent. You know, I mean, that's a big responsibility. And, and, and they're so driven by parenting well that when their kid messes up, it destroys them. And they end up driving, by the way, you'll end up driving your kids nuts. If you're the kind of parent that is so defined by the performance of you as a parent and being a good parent that when your kids mess up, you, you crush them because it crushes you. See what I'm saying? That's someone, many times, whose identity is really in their parenting. Or in their marriage. You can go the other way. Or in their job. And then the job's taken away. Or you fail at work. Or you don't meet a goal. You don't meet a quota. You don't accomplish whatever it's said. You don't get the attaboy you were wanting at the end of the day. And it just, man, it depresses you for weeks. 
or the fact that you're a morally good person, as we spoke of earlier. And many times people who, who pride themselves in, 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 in the fact of what they haven't done, when they look back on their life and they remember the times where they did do something that was really stupid or really simple, it just torments you for years and years and years. And you can't let go of it. And it's because your identity is in your moral behavior. Many times. Believers are those that have stopped boasting in themselves, Paul says, and that glory in Christ. They put no confidence in the flesh. Don't be fooled into thinking, though, if you're a Christian this morning, that you can't find yourself reaching back in the drawer for an old resume. Paul wrote the Galatians because he was afraid they were going backwards. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm talking about you begin to allow yourself. It's kind of like this. You begin to be crushed by stuff and to be depressed by stuff because you think something about your performance, whether it's in the home or whether it's at work or whatever it is, makes you valuable and more loved by God. And so when you don't perform well in that area, it crushes you because you think God loves you less or you're less valuable to God and to others. That's at the very root of this. That's, that, 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 that's backsliding. It's wrong to feel that way. Because your identity is not in performance. It's in Jesus. It's in the gospel. It's in Christ. It's in what's been done, not in what you're doing. And so when we sin even, and we, and we and we're mourn that sin, and we grieve that sin, it's not because now all of a sudden I've got to find a way to get a, right, get a relationship with God again, or I've got to be saved all over again. It's because I know I've grieved God whom I now love. Which brings us to the next thing. What do you treasure? What do you treasure? What do you, who do you trust? What are you trusting? And what do you treasure more than anything in this world? Paul doesn't simply coldly say, well, now I had all this stuff and now I believe in Jesus. Right? Hey, Paul writes his testimony out here and it's not like, you know, I used to be really passionate about being a very religious person and I kept all the rules. And then I found Jesus. No, it's like, when you read that, there's emotion in this. There is a love. There is a treasuring of Christ. He's, everything else is trash compared to Jesus is what Paul is saying. I just want to know Jesus. He is my treasure. He counts it all as loss for the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ. Genuine believers value Jesus above everything else. He's not an add-on or an addition or an afterthought or somebody or someone you tip your hat to every now and then. He is an all-consuming passion who reorients all your other values in life. See, some people don't really value Christ. They use Christ. And Christ doesn't want to be used. He won't be used. Using Christ is wanting Him for a Savior, but not a Lord. It's carving out space for Him in your life, but not surrendering to Him your life. It's turning to Him as a sentimental figure, but not as a sovereign king. Listen to how Jesus described the kingdom of heaven and someone who comes into the kingdom. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus says, that's what it's like for someone to come into the kingdom. He said, well, why would... And some people read this passage and they say, well, I think what it means is, is that Jesus was willing. He so loved and so valued us. He was willing to give up everything to have us. And I don't think at all that's what he's saying. Jesus is describing, I believe, what it's like to come into the kingdom. And he says it's when someone finds and discovers, well, what's the pearl? What, what's, what's, what's the treasure? And it's, it's Jesus. And they're willing to give up everything and to let go of everything and to look foolish in the eyes of the world to just have that. He says that's what it looks like to come into the kingdom. It looks like that to come into the kingdom. To joyfully and willingly be willing to lose all things to have that treasure. 
because you've realized that it's worth more than anything and everything else. See, when you genuinely treasure something and value something above all else, it, it changes your behavior. It, it, it changes the way you do things and why you do things and even your philosophy of life. You'll be willing to make crazy sacrifices for whatever it is you treasure. We treasure our kids, we make sacrifices for them. We treasure our, our loved ones, we make sacrifices for them, right? You like, if you like your job enough, you'll make some sacrifices for your job, right? We sacrifice for things we love. And we see this to the extreme. We see it in sports when people go and they take steroids and they cheat and they do things because they want to perform and they want to make more money and they want to be successful and they want to, they want to win, right? And it's, it's not because they really like shooting their arm up with steroids or taking that pill or whatever. It's because they treasure success and fame in that area. They're willing to compromise over here. They're willing to sacrifice something over here and even sacrifice their body For the sake of that. Because when you treasure something and you want something and you value something, you'll make sacrifices for it. You'll make changes in your life for it. It begins to affect things. Paul says, that's my relationship with Christ. I valued Him supremely. And so I was willing to let go of all this just to have Him. And I call this this permission to go crazy in your relationship with the Lord. It's permission to be a weirdo. Notice, that we go back up to verse 1, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And you're like, well, how in the, why would I rejoice? Why, why, how can you command someone to rejoice in the Lord? Well, then he goes into all this. And at the end of the day, what you treasure and what you value the most has control over your emotions. It has control over a lot of things about you. It will, it, like I said, it, it will shape your decision making. And when your value and your treasure is not in the things of this world and not in your own performance, but it's in Christ and what he's done... It, you find it easier to rejoice because you're rejoicing in the Lord. Right? Not in your circumstances. Not, not in what you've been through. Not in what you're doing. Not in your performance. You're rejoicing in the Lord, in Christ, and what He's done, and who He is. And see, because you have found this treasure, if you're a believer today, that is in, in Jesus, that is the, most, the greatest, the most intense, the most wonderful treasure in all the world, you have permission to be looked at weird, like a weirdo by people in your family that don't know the Lord. To be looked at as a religious zealot. And truthfully, if some people could peek in your, your lives, they, they would think that. You, you give how much of your hours out of a month to church service? Let, let, let me see your bank account. You give how much to God's work in ministry? You gave up how much of your income last year? You do, you do what? They, they, some people would literally think you're nuts. They would think you're crazy. Because of... The sacrifices or the, or the things you give and the time you give and, or the resources you commit to God's kingdom. But for a Christian, we don't do those things because we're hoping in our performance. We do those things because we have this treasure that we're willing to sacrifice for. And we love Him more than anything. So we want to see Him made known and we want to see other people find this treasure. This surpassing value of knowing Christ. It's okay to be this way. We should be this way. The problem is... When the world looks at us, and when loved ones who don't know Christ look at us, and they don't see anything that's weird to them. Our bank account looks no different than theirs does. Our time invested looks no different than theirs does. We know the word about as well as they do. We pray about as much. That's the problem. That's the problem. When we're no more committed than they are. What are you treasuring? 